Hello, and welcome to this Seatrade Maritime podcast. In this Maritime Masterclass episode, Seatrade Chairman Chris Heyman speaks with International Chamber of Shipping Chairman Esben Paulson as Esben reaches the 50-year milestone in his career in shipping. Esben covers his route into the maritime industry, the views from his front row seat to the rise of Asia as a prominent force in shipping, and his opinions on the matters that shaped and continue to shape the maritime industry. So Esben, welcome and congratulations on this important milestone. Thank you very much, Chris, and thanks to you and Trade for inviting me. Let's start at the beginning. Let's go back 50 years. Was it you who chose the shipping industry as your career, or did shipping choose you? Well, it was actually a little bit of both, but the background to it was that my stepfather, who was a Canadian engineer, was a very strict man and a very determined man. And after he married my mother, we bonded through sailing. And so after a period of time, he said to me, well, you have a sense of the sea, and I think you have a perhaps a, a little bit of business sense, and you're going to be in shipping. I immediately thought, well, what, a, what a great idea. I think I was 15 at the time. And um, he set about arranging a program for me, including working on board a German ship from the west coast of Canada down to Australia via the Pacific uh, one summer. Uh, I worked in London as a trainee at E.A. Gibson, and I worked in Newcastle on Tyne as a boarding clerk for the hunting agency company and ship owning side, etc. So these were in my school and university years. And then I was due to join what was then Gibson Vancouver office until one evening an old Norwegian colleague took me aside and said, look, Vancouver is a very nice place, but in shipping terms, it's a backwater. And if you really want to do something with your life, you have to go out in the world. And my suggestion is Asia, because Asia is the next coming thing. And uh, he mentioned Hong Kong and his friendship with Anthony Hardy. And he cabled Anthony Hardy, as it was at that time. To cut a long story short, I interviewed with him actually in London after I graduated and arrived in Hong Kong very young and very wet between the ears, on the 31st of August, 1971. So just coming up to, as you say, 50 years. Shipping chose me, or I chose shipping, you could say, but this was the route. Hong Kong is where you started out. Actually, Hong Kong is where you and I first met back in the 1970s, I recall very well. Time for Anthony Hardy. Tell us something about Hong Kong and its maritime community and its spectacular success in the 1970s with the Shikumi-sen relationship between the Hong Kong owners and the Japanese trading houses and so on. What was it like in the days? There's absolutely no doubt that, as you, as you so correctly said, this Shikumi-san concept of trading house placing the contract of a, of a new building ship on behalf of a Hong Kong owner, typically financed by such banks as HSBC, against long-term charges to, at that time, of course, there were far more named, you know, the K-Line, NYK, MOL, but there were many others at the time, YS-Line, Japan Lines, and so forth. There were quite a lot of very bankable names. And this business model had started by the time I arrived in Hong Kong. The leading lights were, at the time, Worldwide Shipping and Wa Kuang. But there were quite a number of other owners, some of whom still exist today. It was, at that time, of course, it was Valis before it became Valis and TCC and so on. So there, there was a real scramble to do these deals. And I think by the early 80s, Worldwide, for example, had a fleet well in excess of 200 ships, you know, which was just incredible at, at that time. 
But there was also in Hong Kong sort of another tier of owners who were sort of more the Cantonese. I mean, the, the owners I've just talked about were more of the sort of what people would describe as sort of the Shanghai or Ningbo mafia. They had decamped from China and come to Hong Kong. Many of them had bought ships simply as a means to get assets out of China, fearing what could happen in the run-up to 1949. So there was a kind of a two-tier owning group. And as I say, some of the more localized ones, Cantonese background, were typically trading within Asia, whereas the Shanghai slash Ningbo owners were entering these typically entering these longer-term deals initially with Japanese and later on with European counterparties. So it had begun by the time I got there, but it only went from, well, it was already a reasonable base, but of course it just became massive. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, by the mid-80s, early 80s, you know, the Hong Kong fleet was in excess of 70 million tons dead weight. It was a substantial ship-owning center. And there really were many, many, many names that do not exist today, sadly, but some still do exist, of course. But it was on the rise at that time and growing quite rapidly. If you look back over the last 50 years, one of the great structural changes we've seen in the industry has been the emergence of Asia as, if you like, the center of gravity of the maritime world. You've been able to see that at close hand. You're currently based in Singapore. You've been involved in and participated in the development of Singapore as a major world-class international maritime center. Tell us something about what has driven this shift towards Asia and what its implications are for the industry as a whole. Well, of course, the big, single biggest uh, driver in all this has, of course, been, been China. And bear in mind that when I first came to Hong Kong, you, you could not go to China unless you had a government Im invitation, literally. I was lucky enough to go myself in 1978. And at that point, it was still Mao jackets and so forth. And China was very, very poor, uh, even in, in the cities. If you look at a city like what was called Canton or Guangzhou, as it's referred to today, you know, this was not a very, um, not a very nice, nice city at all. And when you look at it today, it's, it's almost inconceivable. Of course, so China was a big factor in this. But of course, in a way, prior to China's, uh, China really taking off, Japan was a powerhouse. And certainly the Shikumi-san deals we spoke about a minute ago partly came about because Japan post-war was heavily unionized and the cost of operating a ship under Japanese flag was prohibitive. And so as a sort of a trading strategy, you could say the, the government, you know, in a way allowed this development of the Shikumi-san deals because it suited Japan's overall strategy. And it certainly helped the shipyard activities and, and the general great wish to become a major trading nation. And certainly by 1980, you know, Japan was really, really a powerhouse. Korea, where I first went in, I remember in 1974, and it is unrecognizable today what they have achieved uh, as well. So, so as I say, China, of course, became the big one. But in the actually in the 70s, it was really Japan and Korea that were the driving forces. Singapore at that time in the early 70s was, in all honesty, a bit of a backwater. It was very much regional trades with small owners. And most of whom do not exist today. PIL, for example, was founded in 1967, was a typical Singapore owner buying old Royal Ocean Lines, what later became Ned Lloyd, Ben Line, P&O, buying these European-owned liners 
just at, at the tail end of that type of trade before containerization, which was, I think, arguably, let's say, in the mid-late 60s. First container ship ever to arrive in Singapore was the Nihon, I think, of 300 TEU, which arrived in 1968. And Singapore had taken a bit of a punt building a container port, by the way. But to your question, I mean, Singapore at that time was, and I worked there about eight months in 1974, because people would go and leave for, for, for six months. So, so um, that was a hangover to the days of when people would travel by ship. It was still the case then. So Singapore was really not a factor at that time in any meaningful way. Hong Kong was very, very much dominant. But what happened in the end of the 80s, a strategy was made by the Singapore government through the MPA to become a global maritime center. And various financial incentives were created and a serious marketing department within uh, MPA was created. And by the time I arrived there in 2003, it was already well underway, um, and Singapore had by then changed a lot because they had managed to bring onshore quite a lot of European shipping companies who wanted to be closer to China, which was then becoming a huge market, but also wanted somewhere convenient and business-friendly with the right strategies, tax competitive, and so on. And Singapore provided all that, and you know it just grew and grew to where it has become today. So the real growth, you could say, in Singapore probably is in the last 15 to 20 years more than the, let's say, the 20 years before that. Absolutely. Clearly, globalization, the shift of, um, of the industry towards Asia is one big structural change that you've seen. Another must be a move towards a more corporatized industry, a more consolidated industry. Tell us something about that. You've mentioned some of the high-profile individuals who dominated the industry when you first joined it. It's a more corporate industry structure right now, isn't it? It is definitely more corporate. And I think the consolidation has, of course, been principally in the container space, where I think four or five years ago, there were about 18 lines. Today, there are, of major lines, about seven. So very, very big consolidation in that sector and to a lesser extent in the tanker sector. And then, of course, the companies choosing to do IPOs, principally on the New York Stock Exchange and to a lesser extent, Oslo and Hong Kong, Singapore, much less extent. I mean, New York is still sort of the, the place for, for that corporate approach. I think the only interesting thing is I was looking at this very issue the other day. About 30% of world ships are still owned by SMEs. And SMEs, I would define as some ship owner with between five and 20 ships. So a third of the world fleet is still run this way. And of course, there are many, many predictions that this will simply not be viable in, in, the, in the longer term. Well, it may not be, but I suspect that that change will be slow. You know, I suspect this will go on being the case because these smaller owners have time and again proved themselves very nimble very flexible, ready to change attack when needed, whereas sometimes the larger corporate conglomerates just don't have the decision-making ability. And to me, that's a great thing about shipping is it is an open business. And history has proven that shipping is very, very resilient and very flexible and very ready to change as required. So I very much hope that these small entrepreneurial owners don't disappear the trend is, however, that, that way. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you, I think statistically you can show that corporatization has come to shipping. And it, given the amount of investment required, 
to be a player, it's not really surprising. I mean, that there's been an increase in corporatization. But as I say, I, I still, I'm, I'm, I'm a great believer in, in the SMEs because I think their contribution is considerable and society overall enjoys the fruits of this competition because it keeps the cost of shipping, generally speaking, maybe at this precise moment in container, but generally speaking, shipping, the cost of shipping has been a very, very competitive cost throughout history. You mentioned the industry's flexibility and adaptability. In the period that you've been involved, we've seen massive technological changes. I mean, in the early years, Malcolm McLean and the containerization process was really driving change in the industry in a very big way. More recently, of course, the new technologies that have been adopted by other industries have been taken on by shipping. In your opinion, has shipping been a rapid adopter of new technologies or as compared with uh, other industries of comparable size and importance, or has it been rather slower than some others to do so? What's your opinion? I think the perception of most people is that shipping is pretty fuddy-duddy, that great at bringing in significant change. I think that is historically has been the case, but I think it has changed uh, really in the last few years quite dramatically because so many solutions that are now available through technology were deemed to be very complicated and just difficult to implement. But now the introduction of things like apps, you know, there's an app for virtually everything these days. And I think many shipping companies can see that there is a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of technological development operationally that can save a lot of time and increase accuracy and, and so forth. So I think it is changing. There is a great interest and a great willingness to embrace technology, I think, generally speaking, is my impression. Esmond, from your position as chairman of the International Chamber of Shipping, you're in a great role to observe the way in which the industry has been regulated, is now being regulated. An enormous change has taken place in 50 years, quite clearly. Do you believe that the shipping industry is now a more socially responsible industry than it was when you joined it? I do. I think way, way more. And there are, there are reasons for this. First of all, we've seen more and more in recent times shareholder activism and just through social media, the public at, at large, it would want us to do better. But apart from that, I think there's a, there's a great there's a great willingness on behalf of most responsible ship owners. They can just see this is a much better way to do things. And so I think there has been huge improvements. I was looking only this morning at, if you look at the track record of the tanker industry, Torrey Canyon in 1967, there was actually an exhibition a few years ago to commemorate the 50th anniversary at the IMO. And we, you know, when you look at that, the, uh, the Exxon Valdez in 1989, Erica, 1999, Prestige, 2002. These events really triggered an enormous change. It took a while to happen, but I think if you look at tanker operations today compared to those years, the improvement is quite dramatic. And I think the, the track record of the tanker industry in making these improvements, if you go way back, double hull when that came in, but in many other ways, it's just, it is just much, much better. And I think you can say Actually, the same thing across the industry. There has been a lot of improvement generally. I think on the regulatory front, the IMO is doing its, its utmost, obviously, 
But over the years, my impression is that issues have become much more politicized than used to be the case. It was originally a, a much more technically focused organization, but over time, politics has come to play a part. I think there is a widely held view by many within the shipping industry that the whole process is just too slow. And the other problem is that because of this being perceived being slow is that some jurisdictions, particularly the EU, have sort of indicated a lack of willingness to go with the process because of its slowness. Uh, and so it's kind of, in quote, taking the law into their own hands by coming up with proposals which are specific to the EU as opposed to be of a global nature. And this creates, of course, potentially a lot of problems because because shipping is the ultimate global industry and we all want very badly to have global rules for a global industry. I think pretty well everybody agrees on that. But then as a subplot, some of the poorer and developing nations feel quite hard done by in, in all this because they feel the whole agenda is just being completely monopolized by the EU and rules and regulations are imposed without proper understanding or acknowledgement of difficulties and challenges that some of these developing countries have. I think also a lot of ship owners have the same view. And, and in fact, there is a sort of a, a feeling that many owners are determined to work at a pace which is faster than that of the IMO. So in other words, the industry is just going at a, at a different speed. That is not necessarily a bad thing, because obviously raising standards and in making improvements is what everybody would like to see. But I think the overriding point is still that one would like to see an IMO that is fit for purpose, that can come up with and bring in global rules at a more optimal pace, and that all the stakeholders concerned can help in this process and work for a common purpose. From all of those years, people in shipping have worried about the image of the industry, the way in which the public regards it. Does it give it the credit that it deserves? Um, do you feel that the image of the industry has improved? And if so, why? And is there still room for further improvement? And how can that be achieved? This is a, um, a question that's very close to my heart, because when I entered the shipping business these 50 odd years ago, people at that time were concerned about the image of, of the industry. And it's something that's been alluded to and, and talked about ever since. And I think if you look back to the days of sort of the single purpose company and people hiding behind it, uh, sorry, we're just the managers, we don't know who the beneficial owners are. Those days are long, long gone now because everything is very transparent. And again, through social media, people are the idea of trying to hide your identity. I think really those days, thankfully and rightly, are over. And people now own up and they step up when, generally speaking, when, when they've done something wrong. So I think in terms of the image, been our own worst enemies, we've had a poor image because we've been incredibly bad at telling our story and particularly telling the improvements that, that we've made over these, these years. I mean, we're terrible at it. And I always swore to myself that if I ever got into any kind of position to have any sort of say on this, I would really, really try my utmost to address this very issue. And so when I became chairman of ICS, I pressed very hard for the appointment of in-house communication expertise and working with external agencies in order to tell the positive sides of our story, particularly underlining the, the improvements we've made, not only to the shipping press, because we tend to often just speak in our own world, but to go beyond the shipping press into the international media to tell our story. 
And if you look at our statistics, we have come some way, uh, we've made some progress in telling our story and, and in hopefully in, in turn improving our, our image. But bear in mind that these efforts, uh, not just by us, but other associations who've also taken the same route to, to investing in, in uh, communications expertise, this, when you come from such a low base, this, this will take time and it has already taken time. But I'm confident that we've laid the groundwork and that slowly but surely, if we keep chipping away and keep reminding the public of where we have improved and, and admit where we have not improved, but just be very transparent and open. In the longer term, I think that shipping's successes and the shipping's image will slowly but surely improve. But as I repeat, we're starting, I have started from a low pace. One of the issues that uh, was highlighted as a result of the constraints of the pandemic was the way in which the industry's workforce was treated. This became a subject of, of wide discussion in the general press, as you know, and you in the ICS leadership in seeking ways to improve the situation. The role and reputation of the industry's workforce is therefore a very important subject. And if you cast your mind back to the years when we saw frequent incidents of ships being detained in Somalia, and ship's crews being retained for long periods of time and badly, badly being mistreated. The level of media interest in that story struck me at the time as being really surprisingly low. If it had been aircraft cabin crew who'd been held hostage in Somalia for those years, the media would have made this into a massive story because somehow it was ship's crew the story never really took off and caught the interest of the public. That is surely a very unfortunate and unfair state of affairs. What can be done, do you think, to improve the status of the industry's workforce, to give them the credit that they undoubtedly deserve for the dangerous, difficult, and at times uh, you know, highly demanding role that they perform? It's a very, very good point. And I think the Somalia situation and, and more largely the Gulf of Guinea and so on, we have umpteen examples of terrible treatment of seafarers and, as you rightly say, very little apparent interest by the global press in this. And I fully agree that if you compare to, to a, an air crew, aircraft being hijacked, of course, it's, it's front page news for as long as that hijack lasts. It is very much a case of out of sight, out of mind. I mean, ships are not in Singapore because you, they're visible everywhere. But in most ports, a port is in one area and very often far away from the, from the city center. And, and so ships are largely out of sight, out of mind. And that has always been the case, unfortunately. And I, I don't see any great change, although uh, service contracts today are quite a lot shorter than they were 50 years ago. Crew changes in normal circumstances take place more regularly than used to be the case. And I think a lot of responsible owners do more for families. There's just more engagement between ship owner and the um, crew's families, sort of on a, on a just on a wider scale. I think crews are treated much better than, than they were, but they remain out of sight of mind. They remain, as we've said so many times, the unsung heroes. And the crew change crisis has brought this into great focus with the difficulty that owners have had in changing crews. I mean, 
you know, more and more owners have had to simply charter in aircraft, you know, for this purpose at vast expense, but are ha- having to do it because there, in many cases there is no other choice. So I think our efforts in our association and all the others has been to highlight this great injustice and to plead with governments to recognize their responsibilities under the International Labor Convention, where it's very, very clear that seafarers are key workers. They are key workers. And it is more than 100 countries have signed up to this. But unfortunately, to this day, many, many countries simply are not abiding by the ILO rules to which they have signed up. It is a problem because, it's, you know, the analogy is not in my backyard. You know, we just take this problem somewhere else. We don't want it. Endless cases of this. And in my own involvement on the charity side, I'm a vice president of Mission to Seafarers, which, of course, you're also involved with, uh, Chris, as an ambassador. And you and I have seen, um, I mean, we could write books about these cases of ill treatment very often in, in ports where, you know, seafarer can't even get off the ship just to get a little fresh air. It's a big, big problem. And whilst there has been some progress, both on a broader scale and in the specific COVID times, I think we have a very, very long way to go. Looking at the broader picture and some of the issues and changes that you've already discussed in a very interesting way, Esben, would you, with a young person today, recommend a career in shipping? And if you do, how would you advise them on what direction it might take? Because clearly it's going to be a very different kind of career from the one that you are currently enjoying. Absolutely, Chris. I would most certainly recommend shipping to any young person who is unsure what to do with their lives. Because to me, shipping is meaningful. It's useful, it's relevant, it's meaningful. And it offers so many aspects, whether you see yourself, if you don't see yourself as a seafarer, you can be in ship finance, you can be in law, you can be in operations, you can be in chartering, you can be an agency, and so on. There are just so many aspects of ship in maritime insurance. There are so many facets to shipping that are there and for anyone who would consider it. And I, I think to have an interest in the sea or to sort of identify with the sea, I think is sort of important in the sense that to be in shipping, you like in any business, you have to be a bit passionate about it. And if you are not really passionate, then it may well not be for you. But I think the entry point today, where it's different is that I think technology offers an interesting angle into shipping. And I've noticed in Singapore, you know, we've tried very hard with the youngsters to say, well, look, (laughs) your image may be that you're going to get your hands dirty and be far away from home for many months. That is one part of it, but that is one side of it. And certainly with technology, the low-hanging fruit I referred to earlier, there are interesting challenges and opportunities via technology into shipping. And I think this is actually one area where we ought to probably spend some time and effort to entice the the young in via that route. And then once they're sort of in, then you can try and, and encourage them perhaps to switch into a parallel function or a different function, you know, within the industry in one of the segments that I've, or one of the areas I've just described. Looking back over 50 years in the industry, Esben, can you pick out for us what has been your best moment, perhaps also your worst moment, if you've had one? <laughs> you know, this question is really just so difficult to answer you on. I mean, I think my best moment was in my sort of final period as a shipbroker. I was involved in the sale of two VLCCs from Costco to Eastern Mediterranean in Athens, Thanasis um, Martinos, and the deal 
made the front page of Lloyd's List. And I remember sitting looking at it and I was leaving shipbroking because I was I was joining Tom in uh, London to, I was already working for them in Hong Kong, but I was moving to London to open a London office for them. So it was my, my last deal, so to speak. And I remember sitting looking at this page of Lloyd's List and said, wow, this is this is this is great you know it was a a, a nice moment the worst moment i don't know really about that but i do remember being very deeply upset about the exxon valdez disaster in in alaska i thought the images that you saw from there were just so so terrible and i think casually left a big black mark on our industry and because i'd been to alaska and I, i i didn't know the area well but i knew roughly where it was and i just thought the idea of a vlcc spilling all those hundreds of thousand tons of oil and the and the effects of it that the, the you know the birds covered in oil was terrible and of course the repercussions as I say were were also terrible because this image has stuck with a lot of the public to this very day frankly and you know whenever there is a problem with a tanker this is what people associate with they forget about the thousands of voyages that are successfully completed in a very safe and proper manner these one-off uh, incidents do tremendous damage in more ways than one. Esmond, you've mentioned a number of the outstanding individuals this industry can offer. Over the years, you've encountered so many of them. Would you like to pick out the one that you consider to be the most outstanding individual by virtue of his or her contribution to the industry over that period of time? You know, because if, if you talk sort of contribution, it, it's one thing. And the person that I'm going to mention has certainly made a contribution. But I, I guess my thinking is also to create a major business from nothing in 51 years, I think is such an achievement in itself. And and so the person I'm talking about is Captain Gianluigi Aponte, the chairman of MSC, Mediterranean Shipping Company, who at the end of 2019, I had the pleasure of spending an hour with him at his head office in uh, in Geneva. He bought several ships from OCL as sort of a fraction above demolition. And I remember at the time people saying, who are these guys? What is this all about? And slowly from surely from that point, buying old end-of-life vessels at very cheap prices to today controlling a fleet approaching 600 ships and number two container operator in the world. I think to have, to have done that really is absolutely outstanding. And having met him as well, people of, of that caliber have an aura, and he certainly has an aura. It was really, really fascinating to meet him. And that's the lovely thing about this ICS. I've had the opportunity to meet such people. It really has been fantastic and a really a privilege. And of course, with uh, Gianluigi Aponte, having achieved great success in the container business. He's repeated it also in the container business. Cruise ship business. It's exactly. now one of the uh, the four leading players yeah. in that business. And there are very few who can demonstrate massive success in two completely different segments of the yeah. industry. And so that's a, a very interesting choice. And finally, Esvin, looking back over the years, is there any particular important lesson that you can take from your time in industry that you'd like to pass on to those who will follow in the future? I think the thing is, you know, when we entered shipping, we were reminded of the Baltic Exchange motto, our word, our bond. You know, that used to be applied because simply from a practical point of view, if you were in Australia with, a, with, a, with one of the great sailing um, cargo ships, 
and, and a deal had to be done, that there was no way you were going to DHL the charter party back and forth or, or, or download it or anything else. I mean, it was a, a one or two line cable and the detail simply had to be agreed very often orally. And so our word, our bond, that was a historical reason for emerging as a saying. But I think history has proven that those that have lived and worked by that principle have generally done the, the best. And of course, there are always in any industry some bad apples that are going to get away with some bad things. But I think overall, in the bigger picture, if you work by that motto, you won't go far wrong. Esmond Poulsen, Chairman of the International Chamber of Shipping, thank you for sharing your thoughts on 50 years well spent in shipping. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Chris, again, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.